0: 1 John chapter 2, verses 18-27, through 27. before we get to that, uh, as you turn your Bibles there, it'll be up on the screen, but uh, before we get to God's Word, I um, want to say uh, and make it uh, official publicly, uh, Ed Hogan has uh, now been brought on as our worship coordinator here at the church. You may have noticed we've been uh, working out the kinks the last four weeks, but did you know, did you know, this is take two for Ed. Ed was the worship leader here for 20 years. And we brought him back, and he's back and better than ever, right? So um, we miss Kristen Koda, but we are excited about uh, Ed's leadership. Uh, Ed is one of the foremost uh, arrangers of music in the country. Uh, and so we're, we, it's awesome that we have such a, uh, a gifted group of musicians and folks who are led by him. And Ed, what I love about Ed in regards to this, this role is he has a vision for multiplying worship leaders, he wants to see many people engaged in the worship ministry over the years to come. And so um, we, 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 we're excited to see that. And you've already begun to see it already on stage the last couple of weeks. Well, cool. Uh, let's get to 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 to 27 is where we're going to be as we continue our study of this uh, wonderful uh, little book of the Bible. This letter written most likely by the uh, Apostle John. I'll pick up in verse 18. I'll read out loud. You read in your own Bibles or follow along on the screen. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might be plain that they are all They all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? That is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Verse 24, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. The word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Uh, Well, we've been working through this uh, book of the Bible, and as I've kind of harped on and come back to uh, almost every week, is to remind you of the overall theme of this book. And the theme is this, that you would know you know. In other words, that you would have assurance that you have a relationship with Jesus and with God the Father, that you would have assurance of your salvation. And throughout this book, what John is providing to us are tests, tests to help us know that we know. Tests to help us test our assurance, to increase our assurance, in fact, to prove our assurance. He gives us tests, he gives us warnings, he gives us calls for caution, and he gives us reminders. And most commentators, as they've looked at the book of John as a whole, they've said there's generally these tests and these warnings fall along three general categories. There are tests that revolve around simply obedience. We've already looked at one of those a couple weeks ago. uh, John says, if you love him, you will do what he commands. Then there are tests that revolve around love, that you would love one another. That if you know God's love, if you experience God's love, that you will then love your brother. And then the last test is the test that revolves around truth around truth, around doctrine. and In the realm of assurance, what John is saying here, and what we're going to be looking at this morning is this, is that our assurance grows as we remain faithful, as we know and as we remain faithful to the truth. That term remain faithful, remain, is a word of abiding or persevering, that you stay, that you don't leave the truth. And what John is after is that we would persevere in the truth. And we would grow. And as you persevere, as you persevere in the truth, as you go on and do years and years of trusting in the truth of what Jesus has done for you, you grow in assurance that you do indeed know God. So I ask you this question this morning Do you know the truth? Do you have the truth? Does the truth possess you? And is, do you possess the truth? This is, an, this is an important question, but we must even address the issue of is there even a truth? There is a truth. This is something that is questioned within our particular culture and society in the Western world in which we have begun to question whether there is any truth at all. But Jesus says there is a truth, and it is not simply made up by you. It is not subjective based on your experience and your whims, but there is an objective truth that God declares to us. Jesus is the truth. Jesus comes and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. John or Jesus prayed in the high priestly prayer that his own disciples, that they would be sanctified in the truth. The way you grow and change is to know the truth. And here John writes, I write so that you might know the truth, so you might have the truth. The truth is separate from you. You don't get to determine what it is. Truth is not true because you believe it. That doesn't make it true. And truth is not truth because you like it. There is a lot of truth you don't know, and in fact, there's a lot of truth that you may not like. Simply because you don't like something or you don't know something doesn't mean it's not true. And what we must see and begin to shape our lives around is that truth must conform us, not truth conforming to us. We must conform to the truth, not the truth to us. This is what generally the way so many of the mindsets of this world is, is the thought that, my goodness, I can do what I want I can believe what I want. I have the truth that is of my own. You believe what you believe, I'll believe what I believe. But that doesn't work very well when you come to the practicalities and the realities of life. You may say as you get into the plane, I've heard of the gravitational pull of the earth, but that's nice for you to believe that. I don't accept that truth. And that's fine. You can go up in that plane and you can question the gravitational pull of the earth and you can jump out of that plane, but guess what? After a few minutes, you're gonna come face to face with the truth. And he will not set you free. It will be a very painful thing. So do you know the truth? Do you know the truth? Do you know how you belong to him? You know the truth. When you know the truth, you belong to him. And not only that, not only is it just believing the truth, but it is persevering in the truth. You believe the truth and you persevere in the truth. And so what John is communicating to us this morning, that the test that we're going to look at in our life to help you grow in assurance is this, is that the mark of a true Christian is one who perseveres in the truth. John, in his longing to see us grow in our assurance in this text, what he's doing is he's trying to strengthen us for the perseverance in the truth, and he brings out three points to that end. Three things he's going to try to say this morning that I want to draw out from the text. So John strengthens our perseverance in the truth, first, by warning us of the threats to the truth by warning us to the threats to the truth. We see this in verse 18. Children, so he's writing to Christians, people that he loves, the beloved ones. He says, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. John says that in this last hour, there is a threat to the truth, and the threat to the truth comes by Antichrist. That's the threat to the truth. Now, two bits of clarification here, because there's two phrases there, or two words that sends that sends people in America into all sorts of a tailspin. Like, we hear the word Antichrist, and, and we, we think of, like, like, helicopters that are actually locusts. And we, we think of people with huge hair on TV. And it, it, we, think about, oh, we think about the Left Behind series. Where, oh, man, we think about the Left Behind series. And we think about the Antichrist. And we're thinking about some weird person who's going to show up and take over the world. This is what we think about these things. Two bits of clarification about this. First, the, the word last hour. It says, that children, we are in the last hour. It is the last hour. And the proof that it's the last hour is that Antichrist have come. This word, this language, last hour, or you'll see in other places in the New Testament, what is called the last days. This language is particularly used in the prophetic genres of scripture. And this language can be confusing for modern readers because when the Bible talks about the last hour, the last days, it is actually, it's referring to an epoch in redemptive history. It is, re- it is referring to the time in between when Jesus, either when he, his incarnation or his resurrection, scholars debate exactly when this time begins. But it begins with the incarnation or the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the last day or the last hours will remain until Jesus comes back and ends all time and brings about judgment. This age, this age, the last day or the last hour began some 2,000 years ago and nobody, nobody, and there's no point in guessing, nobody knows when this age will end. It is simply, it's a symbolic kind of way of talking about an age, an era. This is the last hour. If you actually read in various forms of literature, this is fairly common language, but we're not quite used to it in in our more literal kind of society. But in the New Testament, when it talks about these days, this last hour, you begin to see this pattern that runs throughout the New Testament as it talks about these last days and these last hour. Two things grow. First is the activity of the Holy Spirit, as that we see the power of the Holy Spirit growing and shaping. That He anoints the believers, and that's what we see in Acts. Right as soon after the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, what happens? The the Christians are anointed with the Spirit of God. He is they're baptized by the Spirit. They're filled by the Spirit. And the gospel will spread because of that anointing. But at the same time, what Jesus also communicates is at the same time where we see this growing sense of the anointing of the Spirit and the gospel going forth and spreading to the ends of the earth, we're also going to see more resistance. There's also going to be more difficulties. And so John, as an old, aged, and experienced apostle, is looking at the evidence and saying, Listen, there are two tracks. There is the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, and they are more and more coming in conflict with one another. And this makes sense when the gospel goes forth, right? You see, the devil doesn't mess with churches and with missionaries who are not proclaiming the gospel. He doesn't care. But when you want to go out and do work and proclaim the gospel in the broken places of this world, you better expect that there's going to be some pushback. There's going to be a battle. Now, this brings me to the second bit of clarification. How do we know it's the last days? Well, it says it's the last days or this last hour, this epoch that we're in. This, this era of redemptive history, when we see Antichrist. Now again, this term has, this, people lose their minds whenever this term comes up, and we, it's not just been our generation in the TBN generation, but this has come up throughout Christian history. Um, for example, the church fathers, by and large, thought the, uh, the early church fathers in the first couple centuries of the church thought that the, uh, the Antichrist would be an apostate Jew who would come to power after the fall of the Roman Empire. In our own particular tradition, in the Protestant or Reformed tradition, uh, they began to believe that immediately following leaving the Catholic Church or being pushed out of the Roman Catholic Church as they declared many Reformers that the Pope was the Antichrist. In fact, our own doctrine, our confession of faith, with the Western Confession of Faith for well over 100 years actually had that stated as something that we believe, that the Pope is the Antichrist. Now, they eventually later took that out, as they should because he's not, at the same time, when someone's chasing you all over Europe and trying to kill you, you get a little emotional about these things. But So this, there's been this thought about the Antichrist. And in the last couple centuries, or last couple decades in particular, in following what a theological pattern known as dispensationalism, there's been this um, obsession with end-times theology, and particularly surrounding this character known as the Antichrist. Now, to be sure, there is evidence in the Scriptures and Daniel, there is a man known as the Antichrist, who's also called the man of lawlessness. There, there is, in Revelation 13, someone who's going to rise to power, known as, who's going to be called the beast. And in particular, this person is going to be certainly a, an antagonist against the church. I don't know how much we can know about this. I would not say that the scripture is entirely clear. All it says is there appears to be, at some point, near the end of the age, and near the end of the hour, before Jesus is coming in judgment, there will be one particular uber-Antichrist. But in the meantime, generally speaking, there is actually something more specific going on here that John is talking about. Not that uber-antichrist going on, but these antichrists that are being referred to. Now, what is that? I think John tells us, and he tells us rather clearly, doesn't he? What is an antichrist, according to John? An antichrist is anybody who denies the deity of Jesus Christ, who denies that Jesus is Messiah. So let's put all kind of apocryphal, revelation, Daniel imagery, all the things that you'd see on TV and out of our minds. We're talking about simply the very clear communication of John here that antichrists are those who deny that Jesus is the Christ. And what is going on in the church that John is concerned about for those, these, these folks, and what he's concerned about us, is when we see that people leave the church because they deny and reject a core truth of Christianity. And that is the core truth that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, the belief of that day in the context in which John is writing in is, he is what most scholars believe is he, is he is refuting a particular false teaching that is invading the church that has become known as proto-gnosticism. It is kind of an early form of a, a philosophy that began to take hold about a century later, but this early kind of thinking to this direction. And it was this belief that all things physical were bad, it, that all things physical are, are nasty, and therefore there's no way— that God would take on flesh, that God himself would become a human. And so what they were saying is there's no way. Listen, and so there was all sorts of various uh, uh, beliefs that came out of this thinking. One particular that has has been espoused by many different groups is this, is that while there was a man named Jesus and he has great power, that God came down upon him in great power, but he, he actually, this man Jesus really wasn't God's. The teaching of the church from the earliest days has been that Jesus was fully God and he was fully man, but they reject that. They said this is merely a man who was given some nice powers by God, but he was not actually God himself. And what John is communicating here is that these people who deny this truth are antichrists. Now, as we understand words, that's quite clear, right? Anti, meaning against, and Christ. They are against Christ in the most general sense. And what John is providing for us here is a doctrinal test to our faith. To get back to our, our key issue for the book. This is a doctrinal test. If you do not believe in the deity of Christ, then guess what? You are not a Christian. You have, there should be no assurance that you are actually, you know God, that you have a relationship with God, and that you have received salvation. Because there are some beliefs, there are some beliefs that without which, you cannot claim to be a Christian and be right. Do you hear me? There are some beliefs that if you do not hold to, you cannot claim to be a Christian. Certain beliefs for John are not things that we can simply agree to disagree over. But there are certain core doctrines that must be believed and trusted in. These, there are certainly, there are gray areas in the Christian life. There are gray areas in the Bible, right? For example, many of you are Baptists, and you're in a Presbyterian church. We are, in fact, probably most of you are Baptists, just to be quite honest. But if we, you're in a Presbyterian church. And so we, we disagree over the issue of baptism, right? And we would say we agree disagree over that. This is not something that we feel like is worth breaking fellowship over. And we may disagree. You might think I'm wrong, and I, I think you're wrong. But we still love each other, and we still say, listen, you can hold to this and still so be a, a believer, there's all sorts of beliefs out there. There is issues with are gray. But then there are some issues in the Bible that are black and white. They're right and wrong. They're matters of heaven and hell and life and death, whether you believe them or not. And there are some core truths that if you do not accept them, then you cannot be a Christian. By the way, these are the core truths. It's these core truths. Usually they revolve around the person and work of Jesus. For example, where the cults almost always go along, Go wrong, not the cults from Indianapolis. They have, they, they have injury issues and offensive line issues. But where cults go wrong is, is around the personal work of Jesus. For example, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, they are not Christians. Mormons are not Christians because they do not believe in the deity of Jesus. People can do wonderful, charitable things, and those groups do. They are often way better than us. Have you ever met a Mormon? They're so much nicer than you. They look better than you. They, they handle their money better than you, they do community better than you, and yet because they don't hold to this core belief that Jesus is God, we cannot say that they're Christians. They have an aberrant belief, and they do wonderful things. You don't, we don't get to have defined Christianity any way we want to. The Bible has defined it for us. If you reject the deity of Jesus Christ, then you are not a Christian. It is not a buffet. Christianity is not a buffet in which you get to saunter up to it with your belly and plop it up there and just say, which will I pick and choose? It is given to you. The, the chef has decided what to serve you. You are sitting at the chef's table. There is not a menu brought to you. You will eat what is in front of you, like your mama said. These are core foundational truths. And so the existence of God, the atoning work of Jesus on the cross, the virgin birth, the trinity, if it's in the Apostles' Creed, it's probably a core truth. So John says, if you get rid of this idea, you have missed Christianity. And you're not just just disagreeing on a matter of doctrine. You've missed Christianity entirely. If you disagree about the deity of Jesus Christ, then you have created another religion entirely. It's a whole other religion. Now, here's the issue. Why is the teaching that Jesus is God such a core truth? Why is that such a core truth? Because at the core of Christianity is this admission. And the admission is this, that we are sick. And that we are so sick that we as human beings cannot save ourselves. And we're so sick that Jesus cannot come and be merely a prophet. Jesus cannot come and merely be a great teacher. He cannot come and be just a great ruler. But Jesus is the one who must come and live the life that we could not live and die the death that we could not die. That's the truth of the gospel. We are far more sick than just a little bit of teaching from Jesus will handle We needed a transplant. We need someone to do this for us. We need someone to live the perfect life for us, to die and take the wrath of God for us because we are just that sick. This is a core tenet of Christianity. It is not arrogant. People say, oh, man, look at that as a, you're saying that some people are in and some people are out. That's a prideful position y'all are taking. That if people don't hold to the deity of Christ, they can't be called Christians. Well, let me say it's actually a humble position it's a humble position because what we're saying is we need... It's, we're so bad. You guys may be good out there. You're good. You may be good. You may think you're great. But we are admitting we are so bad that it took God to die on a cross to save us. That's the core teaching of Christianity. Just imagine if someone has a cure for cancer, a shot that defeats cancer entirely, and you get the shot and it, your cancer goes away. That's an amazing thing. That person would be popular, wealthy, and a savior. But you know what? That person... They could save you from cancer, but you'll still die, won't you? You'll still die. At some other point, one of your organs will fail. They've they've cured the cancer issue, but, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, you're still going to die. But here's the beautiful truth of the gospel, is that you were so sick, but he did not just give you an anecdote for a brief period of time. He came and he healed you so fully and so completely that you will live forever and ever and ever. That's the truth of the gospel, and that's why we cannot, we cannot be wishy-washy around these truths. That's why we can't just say, well, we're going to agree to disagree. On this truth, the old preacher saying there can be no shilly-shallying. There can be no compromise or no equivocation. Why? Because the healing is not to buy you another 10 or 15 years of quality life. The healing is to give you life and life eternal. And so it is a matter of life and death. Eternal life is at stake. And so Antichrist. Antichrists deny Christ, and we must deny them as Christians if they do so. But the second thing the Antichrist do is they depart from the faith. Verse 19, that when they reject Christ, they then depart from the faith. John says it, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But if they went out, then it might be plain that they, are, they all are not of us. Did you follow that? In other words, they are not Christians, nor have they ever been Christians is the point that John is making. There are those connected to the church in an external way. That is, we can see you in the church building. You pray the prayers, you sing the songs, you make the professions, all of these things externally, you live a nice life, and yet we would say at the end of all things, if you reject the faith, if you walk away from the truth of Jesus, 20, 30, 40 years from now, we would say that that person was never a believer to begin with. They put on a nice front for as long as they possibly could. They showed that while they claimed to know Jesus, they really did not know Jesus. They, they showed that while they claimed to know the Father, they did not really know the Father. They claimed that while they, they had eternal life, but they did not actually have eternal life. Why? Because if you have eternal life, guess what? You never lose it. It is the nature of the case. You can't lose something that is eternal, it's eternal, it doesn't end. The mark of a true Christian is one who not only believes the truth about Jesus, but then perseveres and remains faithful and steadfast in his belief of the truth. Those who belong to Christ will stay with Christ. This is what we know as the doctrine of the preservation of saints or the doctrine of the perseverance of saints. Jude 1, it's this beautiful passage. It says, we are kept for Christ Jesus. Did you know that? That both Jesus keeps you to present you to the Father, and Jesus keeps you and holds you secure to present you to God. God the Father protects you to give you to himself. John feels the same way about the believers that he is writing. This is so wonderful that John is saying, listen, be careful of those antichrists out there who reject the gospel, who reject the truth of who Jesus is, and who bail out of the church community. Be careful of them. I'm warning of them, but for you, I have great confidence about you, he says. You, I have great assurance you, I think you're doing well. You're holding true and steadfast to the faith. He says that those who reject Christ show that they were not really believers, but not you. You've hold, you hold on to the truth of Jesus still. And John addressed this in another place in his own gospel in a wonderful passage in John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29. He gives us this wonderful truth about how God enables us to persevere. It says, my sheep hear my voice, this is Jesus speaking, and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. You know what? No one includes you. You can't snatch yourself out of the Father's hand because he holds on to you. Now, there's a bit of confusion here, right? This, this doctrine is wonderful and beautiful, that you would be preserved by God. This should be this great assurance and hope. But it's confusing as well here, because what John is essentially doing is saying, I know you're going to persevere in the truth, so let me warn you to persevere in the truth. That's what he's doing. He's saying, I know you have the truth that perseveres, and I know you're kept for Christ. I know no one can snatch you out of God's hands, as it says in the other book that I wrote. So because I know that, let me warn you not to reject the truth. Now, how does that work? How do the warnings, the warnings that we see in the scriptures... And the curses that come with it and the promises of perseverance work together. Well, here's how it works. The warnings are the means of persevering and preserving those who are truly saved. When, when the Holy Spirit comes, when God, John writes this to a group of believers, and when I communicate this to you, that you should beware not to walk away from Jesus, to be distracted away from the deity of, tr- of Christ and the truth of the gospel. For some of you, if you are truly spirit-indwelt, if you are truly saved, you know, what, you know what's going to happen? You're going to go, oh, man, I should be careful of that. I should be careful. And the warning is actually a means of helping you persevere. Because you know what, John and me, I don't know who the believers are in here. I don't know who is truly indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so as a pastor, John is saying, listen, I'm gonna warn you, and as, as by warning you is the means by which you are being helped to persevere. And if you're a non-believer, if you may be just doing the Christianity thing as a front, but you aren't actually indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you aren't truly saved, you hear the warning, you go, yeah, I'm good. I'm okay. You reject the warning. And the warning is just a means of judging you at the end of all things, instead of being a means of helping you persevere. The warning is a means of grace in your life, to be careful, to be on guard. Be careful who you listen to. Be careful who you read. That is important. Right? If you want to know who to read, come come talk to somebody who who has studied God's Word, if you're a young believer. There are people out there who have a front of being believers, and yet they are rejecting the truth of the Bible all the time. By the way, here's, so just to drive this home, here's, the threat is found most often for us. Most of you are going, you know, I'm good. I think Jesus is God. I'm not going to just reject that out of hand. Here's how it starts, though. Most significant core doctrinal truths are rejected way downwind from what you want. It starts with this. It starts with the desire for the truth to conform to you instead of you being willing to conform to the truth. So you say, listen, I like, I want to be liked. I want everybody to love me. I don't want anybody to hate me. I want people to think that I'm wonderful and I'm, I'm very open-minded and I'm very politically correct. And so homosexual marriage, that's okay. Okay, now I got to go back to the Bible and figure out how that works because it has all these passages that makes it quite clear that this is no, no good. So no, you begin doing, you start going all Thomas Jefferson on the Bible. Like, I like this, and I don't like this, and I like this, and not this. And you take out some scissors and you cut and paste until you guess what? You have the Bible of you. You have your own religion. That's what most people do. And this is exactly the issue here, and this is why John is warning us. It starts there. Will you be conformed by the truth, or will you try to shape the truth to conform to you? That's the first warning. That's the first thing that John says to us to try to strengthen us so that we might persevere in the faith. The second thing he tells us, John strengthens us for perseverance in the truth. Second, by encouraging us about our anointing in the truth. About our anointing in the truth. We are anointed, it says, by the Holy One. Verse 20, you have been anointed by the Holy One. And because of that, it says, you all have knowledge you're anointed. That holy one probably is referring to the Holy Spirit. And you ha- if you have the anointing of the Holy Spirit, it says now you have a teacher who has come to live inside of you. You now have an eternal and abiding teacher who will guide you and reveal to you what is right and what is wrong, what is truthful and what is false. In fact, this teacher anoints us. It says this anointing is so profound and so wonderful. And verse 27, it says that you have no need to receive any new teaching from human teachers. Verse 27, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true. And what are we going to make of this real quick? Does that mean we can all go home? That, like, I don't, you guys don't have to pay me anymore, and I should just go, I don't know, I'll go work at Starbucks, because that's probably the only thing I'm good for. Like, not that working at Starbucks is a problem, sorry for those of you that work at a coffee shop, uh, but what, do we not need teachers is it just you and your Bible and the Holy Spirit, and you guys just kind of get up, and it's just you and your Instagram feed and your Bible, right, and your cup of coffee? Is that, is that, is that how Christian life is supposed to be? No, because there's other places in the Scriptures where it talks about how people who have the gift of teaching are given to the church for your benefit. And in fact, oddly enough, what is John doing in the book? He's teaching. He's teaching. So the Bible is constantly advocating teaching. So what in the world is John saying here? What well, John is communicating, once again, we have to understand the context of what he's speaking into. It's what is going on is there are those who are leaving the church. They're rejecting the, the belief that, G, that God became flesh and took on flesh, that Jesus was God himself. And they're saying, listen, we don't, have just, we don't have just the information the apostles have. We have a higher truth. We have some new truth. We have some extra things that you guys didn't know about Right? The word Gnostic means to know. Gnosis is the Greek word to know. That's why they're called Gnostics. We have great truth. We have more truth than you do. And these false teachers are claiming to have this spe- special information about Jesus and about God that would say that they, you know, listen, we don't need all that truth about Jesus being God. We don't need that. We have, we have all these other truths that we want to hold to. By the way, this is what cults have in common. is, is the extra biblical information that they add to the Bible. Right? I had a dream. Oh, I, we have some new books. Thanks, Joseph Smith. I had a, I, uh, an angel came to me, right? Prophet Muhammad, I went into a cave, and suddenly I've got, some whole, I've got the, uh, the Quran. We've got these addition, Almost, This is what has happened. They've added and added and added to the scriptures, and re, mostly they get it wrong about Jesus. Now, what I want you to learn, I want you to learn new things from the Bible. As a teacher, I want you to learn new things from the Bible, but I don't want to teach you new things. right? Woe to me and woe to, to you if I start teaching something that is extra to the Bible. If I come to you and say, hey, guess what? I had a really good prayer time this week, and you won't believe what God told me to tell you, that we are all supposed to become Florida Gator fans, <laughs> right? Look, like, it's an outrage in the streets. <laughs> We're standing up. But I'm going to start my, my religion that has this addition to the Bible that you have to have Jesus, plus you gotta be a Gator fan because God made the sky orange and blue. And so it's the sign that we're all supposed to be Gator fans. And, and, and listen, we're going through persecution right now. It's okay. <laughs> it's all right, right? This is what we, we've done, in which if I'm adding to the scriptures, then I'm creating a new religion. If I'm cutting from the scriptures, then I'm creating a new religion. My job is not to teach you something new, but to illuminate what is already there to make clear what the Bible already says. And what is it you already know? What does John say they already know? They know Jesus. They know Jesus, so they are anointed and they are anointed with the Holy Spirit. Why? Why does the Holy Spirit enter our lives? So that we may have a knowledge of Jesus. The key verse is verse 24. Look that up in your Bible, maybe on the screen for you. Let what you heard from the beginning. So he's talking about what you heard. What did they hear? They heard the gospel. What you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and in the Father. Twice in that verse, John stresses the truth, that we should remain in the truth. And that that truth came to them early on at the beginning of their Christian walk. What comes at the beginning of your Christian walk? The truth about who Jesus is and what he did for you. And so John is saying that the anointing of the Spirit enables us to know the truth of Christ, not by giving us additional information about Christ, but by merely shining a light on who Christ is. The great teacher of the, last 20, the 20th century, one of the great authors is a man named J.I. Packer, and he has this great illustration about the role of the Spirit in your life. And when the Spirit anoints you, know what he does? He shines an enormous light on the truth of who Jesus is. That the Spirit, like a, like a floodlight, right? A floodlight is not there going, hey, look at me, look at me. No, it's saying, look at this. And so when the Spirit of God comes into your life, you know what you start to see? and all of his beauty and all of his grandeur and all his glory is Jesus himself and what he has done on your behalf. The Holy Spirit points people to Jesus. In John chapter 15, verses 26, it says this, but when the helper, referring to the Spirit, comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will do what? He will bear witness about me. The Spirit points back to Jesus. So, your kid goes off to youth camp, you're a college student, and you go to Beach Project, and you come back, you got a friend who goes off, and they have this incredible spiritual high, and you're, going, you're asking the question, is it real? Is it authentic? How do we know if that experience at, that, at camp or at Beach Project was genuine? Was it real? Was it genuine because they cried a lot? Was it genuine because they had a lot of like, deep feelings, those things hopefully were there that would be wonderful? But the question is, what, what, show, what shines a light as to whether that experience was a true experience of God himself is this. Did you get a clearer picture of the person and work of Jesus? Did you say, he's awesome and I am not and I need him and all that he has done for me? That is the sign of genuineness. That you have embraced all the good news of the gospel. How do you know that the spirit of God is in you? because you will see Jesus more clearly. And the truth of who he is, that he is fully God and that he is fully man and that he lived the life that you could not live and he died the death that you could not die and he rose again so that you may have the life that you did not deserve. But this is the knowledge of the gospel and this is what the spirit of the anointing points us back to time and time again. This knowledge of the person and work of Jesus, is it for just a few highly trained Christians? Is this just, you know, like this anointing, is this for just like, the the holy rollers? Is this for the guy who shows up to your church and says, I'm a prophet, I've been anointed? No, this anointing is for everyone who are Christians. Verse 20, but you have been anointed by the Holy One. And what does it say? And you all have knowledge. This is not a, this anointing by the Holy Spirit is not for a few special people. This is for every believer. You see, the teaching of the Antichrist, the teaching of these false um, witnesses, these false believers, is that you have to have a special knowledge. You have to know what they know. And what they have gotten is a special anointing in the Spirit that tells them that Jesus was not God and tells you new ways to live your life. But the truth of the gospel is that this anointing by the Spirit is for everyone. If you know Jesus, if you've come to love Jesus and, and trust in the gospel, then you have the Spirit inside of you. This is not for everyone, not just for a few elite Christians. A number of years back, it, for a very, very brief period of time, we're going like maybe three or four years, you didn't know this, I was already the pastor here, but I joined a cult. It's called CrossFit. And um, <laughs> you might notice that I quit rather quickly. Uh, right, you go into the CrossFit and you're like, I've heard about this CrossFit thing because every one of my friends who's doing it talks about it all the time. Uh, so I've heard, about. I'm gonna go try this, I'm gonna go to the box, I'm gonna go see what this CrossFit thing is about. And I go in, I'm like, oh my word, these people, this, these people are in shape. Like I can't even like, walk up a flight of stairs without breathing hard, and you're going, like, and so you talk to the head trainer, and, and what do they say, what do they say about CrossFit? This is, a, this is a great line, I heard this from one CrossFit trainer, you don't have to be fit to join CrossFit, you join CrossFit to get fit. Well the first thing you should know is that's a lie. Uh, I, I did it for a couple months, and I decided I didn't pre- appreciate feeling like I was going to die every day, right? I mean, life is too short to feel like you're dying all the time. Can I get an amen on that? But, this, but the, what the owner is of, the, of the box is, is saying is true, and it fits well with the Holy Spirit. Right? You don't get the Holy Spirit because you become really spiritually fit. You get the Holy Spirit, and he makes you spiritually fit. And he changes you from the inside out, not by giving you new knowledge, but driving you back to the truth the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done for you, and he does it time after time after time after time again. So, brothers and sisters, you have the anointing of the Spirit. I have great confidence of that, that you know Jesus, that you know the truth of the gospel, and so be faithful to this truth. You don't need some addition. The place where I think we would be tempted to add something to the gospel is to begin to seek out and speak begin to seek out kind of special knowledge is when we I think most often we were discouraged about our faith. When we say, Jesus ain't working for me, I need something else. And we start going, Jesus plus, Jesus plus. I need I like or the way it turns out is like this this whole Christian life thing isn't working for me. There's too many constraints, but I like the Jesus character and how nice he was to people, and so I'm gonna go Jesus minus all this other stuff, because then I can live the way I want. No, you have the truth. The truth will set you free. Or if maybe you want Jesus, but you add some special rules so that you can feel better about yourself, Jesus plus whatever my special, right? This happens throughout Christianity, right? You get these people who say, you know what we we need to do? In fact, a couple centuries later, the Gnostics, as they begin, their their teaching begins to be propagated, a whole group of them, they say, you know what we got to do? If you're a real Christian, you're going to move out to the desert. You're going to have nothing but like bread and water every few days. And we're going to sit out here and we're going to just scribe out the the passage of Scripture for the rest of our life. It's that that kind of thinking. Jesus plus some special way of life. You're anointed with the truth, brothers and sisters. Go back to it time and time again. One final point. John is calling us and trying to strengthen us in our perseverance in the truth. Lastly, by calling us into our abiding in the truth. Now, some, I struggle with this. But this is odd language to try to draw this out. Calling us into our abiding in the truth. I want to try to draw out the fact that you already have the abiding. So you abide in the abiding that you already possess. Let's draw that out in a second. Verse 24, 25, and then 27. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Verse 27. But the anointing that you received in him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Similar to our whole issue about the perseverance question earlier, the logic of this verse is a little bit confusing, so follow along. The logic of this verse is this. The knowledge that comes from the Holy One abides in you, so let it abide. It abides in you, so let it abide. The anointing of the Holy Spirit is upon you, so abide in the Holy Spirit. This is what you have, so abide in what you have been given. That is the logic of the passage. Now, we have to ask the question, what does it mean to abide this is—I think this is a—is one of a, a vague word that we use a lot as Christians, but it's not well explained. Abiding means simply to remain, to stay. We could even say to live—that you stay in place. There is an interesting dynamic at play. There is a shared responsibility for abiding in the truth. On the one hand, the truth has to be given to you, right? There is a passivity to abiding right? It says, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. It's already there. It already resides. It's the posture of reliance and dependence, like branches dependent on a vine. Actually, this is language that John has brought out before. John chapter 15, he says, abide in me as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. What is he saying? If you want to have life, if you want to know the truth, then you have to abide. That life, all your life source does not come from you. It comes from the branch. Apart from the anointing of the Spirit, you cannot understand the gospel. You see, abiding, it requires, it's kind of like sailing. If you've ever, I, I tried sailing I, one time. I was in, on the coast of Croatia, and it was really cheap to kind of get a little sailboat and kind of sail. Off. Now, if you've ever tried sailing, it is really hard. Like, I just kind of like wobbled there for three hours, but if you, if you don't, what do you need in order to sail oh, well? You need wind. You need wind, and that, you cannot go anywhere unless the truth of the Spirit, unless there is God is doing something, unless the, the Spirit has anointed you. All right, that is the passive part of abiding. But there is an active part of abiding. Abiding is an action as well. Here is something you must choose to do. Jesus commands us: abide in Me. He says, "I abide in you, so abide in Me." He commands us to rest in him. And so I think the best image I can give you of this is like this, as it relates to truth. It's like when you look at your dog and you say, dog, stay. And the action of that dog is to stay. But it takes incredible effort for a dog to stay if there's a bunch of squirrels running around, isn't there? Right? And this is how we are with the truth. You are supposed to abide in the truth of who Jesus is and all that he has done for you. Stay. Stay. That'll do, pig, right? That'll do, boy. You stay. But we got all these other truths that are that are taunting us out there. I don't wanna stay. I wanna run around. I wanna chase that. Abiding, the action of abiding is to stay, and that actually is an action that takes incredible work. It means day in and day out getting up and saying, I'm going to abide in the truth of what has been given to me. In a nutshell, abiding in our context when it relates to truth means this, that you remain trusting in the gospel. That you don't run after some extra belief system. Abiding is taking the truth that you already have, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you press it in. You push it in further. It is not about getting new information, it's about utilizing the information and the power and the strength that has already been given to you. Why do we memorize scripture? Why do we, especially when your kids, parents, there is nothing better than you can do when your kids are four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and 10, why? Because their brains soak it up. You ever try to memorize something when you're like 25? Nothing sticks anymore. But if they're five, everything sticks. Why are you doing that? because you're pressing the truth in so that one day that truth will come out. That truth will remind them. It will whisper to them. One pastor put it this way. He said, put the scriptures in the heart of the child, and it will be the preventative medicine of the, against the allure of the world. When your kids are going off to college and they walk away from the truth of the gospel, well you, well you, you may grieve and you may, you may be wondering what is going on, but you at least know this, if they have know the word, is that the Spirit of God, because of that word, is in there, in their minds and they cannot get rid of it. And God will use that word and say, and just pester the mess out of them. Don't you hear the word that you memorize as a kid? So what do you got to do? You got to press. You got to abide. Abiding in the truth means you got to go back to the gospel time and time again. You got to press it into your life. I've got a friend who, when he puts his little girls to bed, he blesses them. And here's what he says over them. He says, do you know that God knew you before the world? Before there was a star in the sky, he knew you and he loved you. Before there was an ocean, he loved you. Before a giraffe, he made a giraffe or a hippo. He loved you. He loved you while he formed you inside the womb of your mama. And he loves you right now. And he is watching over you while you sleep. And he thinks you are so precious. We need the truth to be pressed into us. Why? Because the night is coming. When I wonder where daddy is. Where things are hard. When I get discouraged. When I want want life to be easier. You pressing the truth into your own heart. You doing this for your friends. You doing this for your spouse. You doing this for your roommate. A couple of years ago, the movie The Help came out. It's based in Jackson, Mississippi, in the 1960s. It depicted um, African American women who worked in the homes of white women as maids and nannies. And the, one of the main characters was, was a woman named Abilene, and she was the nanny, and she was raising a little girl, and she was one of many little children that she had raised over her career as a nanny. And this, this girl, this young girl that she was raising had a mom who was not really involved in her life at all. In fact, she was downright abusively neglectful. They had hired a nanny, so that was nice. But the mom, by all the way that she lived, said, I, I prefer to be a part of the junior auxiliary, and I, 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 I prefer my social status, and I prefer my friends, and I prefer this lifestyle over hanging out with you. And so that Nanny Abilene said, though, in her wonderful understanding of the gospel, she came from a culture that understood it better than the rich socialite culture that this mom came from, and she spoke the gospel to this little girl, and she would say, get over her, and she would get on her knees, and she would get in the face of that little baby girl, and she would say, you was smart, you was kind, you was important. Why? Because she was pressing the truth in so that when the lies come, there's a truth that speaks louder. You pour the truth in. Do you have the truth? Do you know the truth? This is not just a matter of raw, crunchy doctrine. Oh, it involves crunchy doctrine. But man, it gets real, real when life hits. Do you have the truth? As the truth sets you free? We come to the table this morning. We close with this. So if you're serving communion, if you can come forward. God knows that you're weak. And your faith is weak. He knows that we are like the dog who's watching the squirrels run by. And so he's given us a picture to remind us. And he knows it's difficult. It's difficult to trust the gospel because can we see God? No, he's invisible to us. And so what he's given us, he's given us a physical representation of his grace. What we're going to celebrate this morning is called the sacrament, it's called the Lord's Supper. And a sacrament, St. Augustine said it's this, it's a visible form of invisible grace. It's a visible form of invisible truth. We get Jesus in the sacraments. And literally what we do is we feed on him over and over and over again. We need this. I'll tell you a story in the middle of World War II. As you'd imagine, throughout Europe, there was thousands upon thousands upon thousands of children who got displaced. Who either didn't know where their parents were, or who had seen their parents get killed, and were fending for themselves. And where the allied troops would hit various territories, they would free these children. Many of them had been starving to death. And they were getting these children, they got them into orphanages, and they began to feed them and care for them. But we were finding that many of these kids did not sleep very well, as you'd imagine. The tears that they had endured and, and, and just the, the, the irregularity and the un, not knowing what was coming in life. The lack of assurance of the next day. It had messed with their ability to sleep. What they found in a study that they did is that these little children would be able to sleep if after they would feed them dinner and they would go put them in bed. When they put them in bed, they would give them a loaf of bread. And they would hang on to that loaf all night long. And why would they do that? Because it would tell them that in the morning there would still be bread for them there was still provision for them they they already have tomorrow's bread they have all that is necessary that tomorrow is taken care of and that is what we get here in just a moment i'm going to put bread in your hand or an elder or a friend is going to put bread in your hand and there is it's what that bread tells you is this there's a god who made you there's a god who loves you And you can rest your eternity on him because this God who made you says this, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. Feed upon me. And if you believe that, here's the beautiful truth. The truth of of verse 24 is this, that if you believe that truth, you get the son and you get a daddy and you get eternal life. Let's go to the table. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you feed us truths that Lord, you could have just given us your spirit, as incredible, mind-blowing as that is, but you didn't just give us your spirit. You gave us your word by your spirit that we look and we can look back to time and time again, and read and hear the truth of the gospel. And then, Lord, you went above and beyond, and you said, "These people, they need—they need words. They need the presence of me, but Lord, they also need something to touch." And so you gave us a meal. You gave us a meal that reminds us that there is bread tomorrow. There is a truth that we can feed on today and a truth that we can feed on tomorrow and the next day and the next, next day. And so gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd, we, we set aside this bread and I pray that you would, your spirit would use this as a means of grace to encourage us, to help us to persevere in the truth, to keep us from running away from the, from the, from the things of this world to say this is a truth that I want to conform my life to even if it's hard because this is a truth that is beautiful. This is a truth that gives life. And so gracious God, we set aside this simple bread and this simple cup that represent your body and your blood and remember, we remember what you did for us, the truth that you died for us, that you lived for us, that you were resurrected on our behalf. So we thank you and praise you for this meal. In Jesus' name, amen.